right, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to be back together this week. I know that many folks are at home joining us because COVID numbers have been high. And so uh, many of our folks are sick or are caring for someone who's sick. Um, and so we are sort of partially gathered here and partially gathered at home, I know. So we are beginning a new series today called A Theology of Ethnicity and Race and Justice. And so we're gonna tell you what I intend to do over the next three weeks here. So I'm turning in my Bible to Genesis chapter one, but let me do this. Let, let's just pause and pray together in particular for members of our body who are sick and in need of healing. I hear uh, stories every day uh, along those lines. And so it would just be good for us to pause and pray together. Would that be all right? Yeah, and if you're at home, friends, we love you. We see you and just join us in praying as well. All right, so let's pray. Lord, thank you that you promised to be with us when we gather in your name. And so we're gathered here now physically in this space. We're also gathered with folks at home who are joining us in worship. And we wanna pray specifically for members of our body and our neighbors as well, not just members of our church family, but our neighbors who are sick. We ask for your healing touch and power. We thank you that you possess all power and are able to heal and we ask you to do it. We thank you that you hear us and we call out to you because of the work of Jesus, we're able to come before your throne, Hebrews tells us, with confidence and boldness, the throne of a perfectly holy God, having been made righteous by the blood of your son. And so we pray that. We also pray, Lord Jesus, not just for physical healing, but also but for peace and uh, comfort. We thank you that your word tells us that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. We thank you that none of our afflictions are purposeless, but are purposeful in the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, not just that you would heal, but also that you'd comfort, that you'd bring peace of mind and peace to anxiety and worry. And Lord Jesus, we ask you to be present with our brothers and sisters in a way that comforts. We thank you now for the privilege of being together to examine your word. Help us to do that well. Lord Jesus, would you speak now through me, your vessel, uh, guard my mouth to speak what is true, what is helpful, what is right, that your body may be built up that we might look more like you, Jesus. We pray it in your name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter one. And let me tell you what we're doing here. As, uh, and you may be joining us for the first time, not even aware of kind of what series we were in. But we are beginning a new series today called Thinking Biblically as it relates to ethnicity, race, and justice. And so over the next couple of weeks, here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna talk about a subject which I know many of you have had questions about, thoughts about, I hear them regularly. It's a controversial topic and one that God's people need to think rightly about. One that we need to be able to sort of digest and dissect in a biblical way uh, so that we might have opportunity to speak into the lives of others in a way that is helpful and winsome. And so we wanna talk today about what is a biblical theology of ethnicity and race? What is that? What does it entail? How do the scriptures speak about it? And then next week, we wanna talk about justice. How does the Bible talk about justice from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation? And then week three, we just want to take some time to, to say, well, what are the applications of that? And to think a little bit more specifically about, well, if, if these things are true biblically, then how do I apply them? So we're going to do some, I think, some, some good lifting, some heavy lifting, if you will. We're probably going to run over today, I'm just going to tell you, because uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, all right? And so we want to cover that ground this week, next week, and then if we don't get to some application points that you're thinking about, I hope that we will get to them in week three. So just maybe kind of to chart the course for you. Now, let me say as well, the elders of the last, I can't remember exactly, eight to nine months 
have been putting together a theological paper on this subject, and that is available to you. You can find it if you go onto the website where this sermon will be. It will have a link to it there, uh, and you'll be able to to look at that. It's a companion piece. I'm not just going to preach what's in that paper. I'm going to preach, basically, I'm going to walk you from Genesis to Revelation today on this subject. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know why we're going to be here a little while. I'm not going to cover every book of the Bible, I promise, all right? But what I want to do is give you a biblical theology. I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. But we're going to walk from Genesis to Revelation. And that paper is maybe a a companion piece to this. So we hope you'll check it out, look at it. The elders have labored over that to sort of say, okay, how how, how do we speak into this confusion and division within the body of Christ over these subjects in a way that we hope helps uh, and represents a scriptural approach to these things. So you can look at that. That's there. And then the last week of this series, because we know that sermons are monologues. I get up here, I talk, you listen. There's not a whole lot of back and forth. And dialogues are better than monologues. Who would say amen to that? Dialogues are better than monologues. And so when we tackle some challenging subjects, often one of the things that we want to do is to make space for that dialogue. So the third week of this series, January 30th, right after the second service, right after this service, we are going to have a Q&A time. Uh, and the elders, you can ask questions about the paper. You can ask questions about something I've said in the sermon series. All throughout, starting now, uh, today, you can, you can send us any questions you've got. Again, if you go to the sermon on the website, there will also be a link to a place where you can just submit questions that you might have that you'd love to talk about. It would help us if you do that in advance because then we can kind of know what the most percolating questions are. Uh, you're, of course, welcome to ask questions if you come to that Q&A. Just in the moment, you can ask, of course. Uh, but it would be great if you want to submit it in advance. And just for what it's worth, I wouldn't remember my question three weeks later. So if you're like me, maybe if you, got a, if you think of a question today, go ahead and throw that in there uh, as a way to make sure it gets asked and that we get some time to talk about it. So that's just to chart the course for us. Now, One of the things I've loved is we've gone as an elder board through this subject and we've been preparing, I've been preparing for this series. One of the things that was highlighted to me is that something has been missing as a church in our biblical diet. And doing this study has helped me kind of recognize that. Now, if you've been with us for any time, you recognize that our typical, um, our normal mode of operating on a Sunday morning is that we we do what we call expositing of different books of the Bible. So we will just take our time to walk through from beginning to end a book of the Bible. After this series is over, we're going to do that with First and Second Kings. We're going to go through those historical books. Before this, we did First Thessalonians, if you were with us for that. The reason we do that is because we think it helps us on a number of fronts. One, it helps us get the Word of God in its context. So we're not just ripping verses out of a book of the Bible with no awareness of their historical context or of what came before them or what came after them. It also helps us not just pick our favorite subjects and just go, oh, we, we only want to talk about this helps us be really in the full counsel of the Word of God. But one of the challenges with that approach, or one thing that it doesn't enable us to do, that I think as I've been preparing for this has been highlighted for me, is it doesn't enable us to see some of the themes that run throughout Scripture from beginning to end. Some of the things that are, if you're preaching through a book of the Bible, you will find that theme and you can touch on it briefly, but you have no awareness or no ability in that moment to say, yeah, and this theme has been developed because it was talked about in the Old Testament as well before this. And here's how that theme was talked about there. And then here in light of the cross of Christ is how that theme comes about. So some examples of that would be, there's themes in the Bible like the day of the Lord. That's a, that's a theme that shows up all over the scriptures. It shows up in Revelation and in the prophets before in the Old Testament, even in the historical books 
You find these ideas of the day of the Lord. You find things like the Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus gives to himself or refers to himself by, but it comes from the book of Daniel. And so understanding how that theme gets developed, themes like exiles, living as exiles in the world, or themes like the remnant or the kingdom of God. These are all themes. So one of the things that we're, I'm going to try to do to help round out our biblical diet as a church family is from time to time, in between expositions of books of the Bible, I'm going to try to return to some of these themes for us and help us see them from beginning to end. And so this series is an example of that practice where we want to learn to do biblical theology, not just, hey, what does the Bible say about this, but how does this idea play into the larger purposes of God from beginning to end? Now, let me, let me explain why a series like this is important. It's not actually primarily because this is a divisive subject and there's a lot of confusion about it. Now, we wanna bring clarity where there's confusion for God's people, of course. And where there's division, we want to see unity around the truth. Of course, we want that too, right? But more importantly, the reason a subject like this is important to tackle is because God is advancing his purposes in the world through ethnicity and race and justice. And we want to understand not just hey, how does a Christian think about this, but how do these things serve God's bigger purposes? In other words, we don't just wanna examine, okay, well, how do I answer this question about ethnicity? Or how do I answer this question about race? What we want to see is that God has a purpose for ethnicity and race that is really intentional and really important for advancing his redeeming work in the world. Now, we would argue that the theme of scripture is redemption from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it's a story about God redeeming a people for his own glory by sending his son into the world to die for their sins and rise from the dead. All of the Bible is one story. Would you agree with that? The scripture's one story, right? With a lot of different parts and a lot of different movements. And it's a fascinating story. If you've never read the scriptures, man, I wanna invite you into the best book ever written. It is absolutely stunning and fascinating. Now throughout that, these themes like the kingdom of God, Right? or like the one we're looking at today, ethnicity and race. They play a part in God's bigger story and they're important because of the part they play, not because the subjects themselves are important, but because they advance God's purposes in the world in a specific way that helps us understand what he's doing. Does that make sense? So that's one of the things we want to understand as we think about a theology of ethnicity and race my argument is that it's something he cares about, he has a design for, and which when we steward it well, represents a major opportunity for gospel advancement. The reason to talk about a theology of ethnicity and race is because when we get it right, it advances the gospel. That's why. It's not because it's a hot button topic in the political spheres. It's not because you know, um, your neighbor has a lot of hot button ideas or opinions about this. You know, It's because Doing this right as believers and thinking about it biblically advances the purposes of the gospel. Now, even if we didn't have the scriptures in front of us to look at, can I tell you that one other indicator of how important this subject is to God's purposes is whatever we see division among God's people and confusion among God's people, is that the work of the Lord? No, who's it the work of? The enemy. He loves to confuse and divide God's people. He loves to get them to believe things that aren't true. And he loves to bring unity, or loves to take unity and, and break it up. He loves to do that. Now, I would suggest that wherever we see that, we're seeing the work of the enemy. And the most strategic places, the places he most likes to mess with us is in the places where we most closely reflect the image of God. 
In other words, the most strategic places for the enemy to, to try to ding us and divide us and confuse us is in the places where we are most reflecting his image. I would suggest in our culture, that's in two places. Around, around issues of ethnicity and race, there's a lot of confusion and division. The enemy is at work there. And one of the reasons he's at work is because this is an important way that we reflect the image of God. And so he loves, he loves it when we don't get this right. He wants to bring confusion and division. The second is in the area of sexuality. There's so much confusion around sexuality in our culture, around gender and the way we're designed. And that's an indicator that these are important issues because God has made us in his image and he's closely connected that image bearing that we have to our ethnicity, to our heritage in that way, and to our sexuality. Those things are deeply important. So the enemy loves to bring division and confusion there. You with me so far? All right, cool. Fantastic. So let's go. This is going to be one of those where I'm going to move fast. <laughs> I already talk fast. If you want a, tri a trial experiment, this will be online. You can go back and listen to it again. Turn me on to two times speed and see how that feels. All right. Then I'll feel slow on a Sunday morning. That'd be great. All right. So I want to give you eight ways that a biblical theology of ethnicity and race has developed, all right? Eight ways that it's developed. So number one is really simple, and it's actually prior to anything related to ethnicity, but it's the foundation stone of it all, and it's this. All people are made in God's image. Now, that sounds like a very simple statement, but it's the bedrock foundation that unless we get that right, we can't do anything else right, all right? So all people are made in God's image. Look at Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. Here's what they say. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's really important because what we have there is two distinct types of people, male and female, both made in the image of God, not one mostly in the image of God and then the other one completely in the image of God, but two diverse, different, distinct beings, both made in the image of God. In other words, God's image can be born by more than one type of person, yes? All right, that's important to understand. Then verse 28, and we're gonna come, verse 20 is gonna be pivotal. We're gonna come back to it, so listen to it. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We call this the creation mandate. In other words, in this creation mandate, God is saying, spread out, fill up the earth. The creatures that I'm making, you human beings, I want you to rule over my creation. In order to do that, you're gonna need to fill the earth. You're gonna take raw material that I've made and you're gonna cultivate it. You're gonna take things and you're gonna make them. I'm a creator, you're gonna be creators. Right, you're gonna rule over the creation. He says, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so verse 28 is gonna be really important because we're gonna find here in a few moments that people aren't going to obey this. And God is gonna use ethnicity as a way to get them to obey it, All right? So here's what's gonna happen. Now at the beginning though, so let's start at the beginning. All people are made in the image of God. Now listen, friends. We are different as human beings than every other part of God's creation. All of it bears his fingerprints. All of it is made by him. And yet of none of it does he say, it is in my image in the way that he says that about human beings. 
And that is true for those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. Every human person is made in the image of God. The implications for that are almost endless. Here, the, the thrust is that as his image bearers, we are to rule. We are to have dominion over the rest of creation. That's the, the big thing emphasized here. But you can probably, without much hesitation, trace out all the different or many of the different implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. You and I bear his likeness. We bear his likeness in a way that is unlike anything else. We have the ability to represent his very nature in a way that is different than any other part of creation. So here's what that means. It means any right action in any situation related to human beings has to begin from this theological truth. You cannot take right action towards a person unless you begin from the bedrock foundation of what God has said that they are his image bearer. Think about what that means probably for the way you acted at work this week. How different we might be if the first instinct we had was to see every person as someone who reflected something about God, who displayed something about him. Now we're gonna see in a moment that gets broken, yet it is not gone. Every interaction with every person begins from that theological truth. Now, we don't have different ethnicities yet, as I said, but we do have this foundational truth that we need. And we also have male and female, which tells us when God says, I'm making people in my image, it's not just one type of person that bears my image. It's possible for different types of people to all reflect my image so that they're all made in that image. Does that make sense? And you can probably guess why that's gonna be important as we come to the creation of ethnicities. Right here, it's gender, but you're gonna see its importance. So then, a couple of implications. If all people are created by God, then all descend from Adam and Eve here, from this part of scripture. So what that means is when we hear lots of talk, at least mostly in a secular world, um, and let me say, sorry, I should have said this at the beginning, right? Friends, if you're not a believer and you're with us, and, and we know every week that there are many with us that way, and so we're glad, you, we're glad you're here. We want you here. Um, let me tell you that one of the things that you're gonna hear me say, you're gonna hear me be critical of some secular ideas here. That's not just to pick nits. It's because we truly believe that what the scriptures offer is the only plan of round ethnicity and race that actually works. So there's lots of different ideas out there and they just, they can't do what they say they can do, all right? But the scriptures paint a picture. Now, we will admit, I will admit for us, you can tell me if you agree, that we have as a church, and I mean our church and I also mean as Christians in general, we've come up far short too often of actually living out the biblical ideal. And we need to be willing to admit that because quite often the world looks at us and they go, you just seem like you're denying there's a problem here. You just seem, you know. And friends, we want to both walk in biblical truth, not in secular ideas that don't actually, can't actually do what they say they can do, but we don't want to be those who don't act, who, want, who act as if God does not have a beautiful design and purpose in redeeming and reconciling people across ethnic boundaries and bringing healing to those divisions To deny that would be to be less than biblical, far less than biblical. Anyone say amen to that? Okay, so. Now, so let me say, we, we, um, 
Oh, goodness, I lost my train of thought. Where was I? That's what happens when you go off the notes. Oh, okay, all right. So we were talking about this, um, this secular idea, perhaps, that there is, um, that race, as it's defined by skin color, is a real biological category, and we would argue it is not. So neither is it a real biological category nor a real theological category. There's one race of people. There are not multiple races. There are multiple ethnicities, but there is one race, all descending from Adam and Eve. There's no, there's no stock in the idea that there are one race of people and another race of people, and they are sort of inherently different. No, we descend from Adam and Eve as divine image bearers, and that's really important to understand. God loves ethnic diversity, but there is only one race of people. All right, makes sense. All right, so just starting there, that's really deeply important for us to get. Now, ethnicity, as I say, is a biblical category. We're gonna see that in a minute. It's marked not just by, people typically talk I'm using very layman's terms, not really academic terms here. Typically define race as skin color, right? But ethnicity may involve skin color, often involves skin color, but has way more to do with shared culture, shared heritage, shared language, shared experience across a group of people, which is why when the scriptures talk about the nations, you're gonna hear the scriptures talk about the nations regularly. That word in the Greek is ethne, which is the founding word of this idea of ethnicity. And what it means is people groups that have shared culture, history, heritage, and language, and often shared skin color, but not always. And so ethnicity is this deeply important biblical category that we want to see what God's purposes are for it. All right, so hopefully you're following that. Now, the next implication for us is this, is that all people have immeasurable value. Let's just be really simple. All people have immeasurable value. And until this gets through to our hearts, nothing else will really matter. Like nothing else I say to you is gonna matter much unless you believe that as divine image bearers, all people have immeasurable value and need to be treated as such. Deep dignity and honor. Now that's not to say that there aren't really broken things about us, which is where we turn next. So the second thing we see, and again, these first two are not specific to ethnicity, but they're the, they're the building blocks for us. The second thing we see is from Genesis chapter three, and it's this, sin has broken our image bearing. Not completely destroyed it so that it's not there, but sin has broken our image bearing. Now let me read to you Genesis chapter three, verses one to seven. And when we read this moment, friends, can I just do, a, do you a little favor here and say, when you're reading through the scriptures, when you return to read this, you should, and I should probably never read this without weeping. Because this moment is the origin of all war and hatred it is the origin of all animosity and racism. It is the origin of all my lust and greed. This is where it all begins. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This is the part I want you to get. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, as I said, this is, this is the reason you and I don't just inherit a predisposition to sin, a sin nature. We inherit the guilt of this moment as part of this one race of humanity. But for our purposes, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the separation, not just that happens between God and people, because in, after this, God removes them from the garden. They can no longer be in his presence because he is a holy God and we are sinful people. But there's a division that happens not just between him and them. There's a division that happens between the two of them, between one another. So we have, as part of our divine image bearing, being fractured, being broken, it automatically and immediately results in these categories where we once celebrated our differences as ways that we differently reflected the nature of God now become cause for division and separation. They now become cause for insecurity where once vulnerability and trust was present. Now what do they do? They were naked, they knew it, and they separated themselves from one another where once there had been complete trust, now there was defending myself, right? So where there was once hey, you are female, I am male, and we both reflect the image of God and praise God for it. Now there's division along those same lines. I have to separate myself from you, hide myself from you in the ways that I'm different from you. Does that make sense? The first thing that happens is division from God, separation from God, but the second thing that happens is separation from one another. And so here's some implications for that. How does that play out in a theology of ethnicity and race? Well, let me give you a couple of implications. One, the broken image of God in us means that we are prone to all manners of sin and even our best efforts to do good fall short of being perfectly righteous. It means that we can expect that we're gonna come up short in this area, yes? It means we can expect that we're gonna come up short. But it also means that we should expect that differences in the way we bear the image of God have now become causes for division and strife rather than celebration. So ways that are not sinful, but ways that actually reflect the image of God are ways that now divide us. We should expect that to happen, which means part of the sin that's in us, friends, if we can acknowledge this, part of the sin that's in us means that things that are different about other people, including their ethnicity, is going to be rather than something I automatically celebrate. My sinful nature is going to cause me to want to separate from them based upon that and to see them as lesser because of it because it makes me uncomfortable, right? That's part of the point here. The division that's created is things that once would have been celebrated as ways we bore the image of God now become causes for division. Are you with me? Do you see that? Can I just look? Look, let me be the first to say, I see this in myself. Maybe this will help you own it in yourself. I've had the privilege, in the name of Jesus, get how messed up this is. In the name of Jesus, I've had the privilege of traveling to a lot of different countries. I have been to multiple countries in Africa, to South America, to Central America, to Asia. I've been to a lot of different, I've, I've been around a lot of people from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And do you know what I find in myself? Not because of sinful aspects of those cultures, without exception, every time I've been there, I find in myself some indignance towards them for the way they're different from me. I have not once ever in my life been to another place around people of another ethnic background and not been put out 
because of some of their differences from me. Now, what I have to do is stop and go, Lord, what is going on in me? But do you see that's what sin has done? It has broken the image of God in us so that rather than celebrate their differences, I'm not talking about sinful aspects of their culture. I'm talking about things that reflect the image of God, but they annoy me because they're not like me. And so I think of them as lesser or as a hassle or something that just bothers me or that inconveniences me rather than celebrating them the way that I should. Have you ever felt that way? I can think of time and time again And there's no other word for it than sin. There's no other word for it than sin. It's in me and friends, it's in you too. One of the realities of a biblical theology of ethnicity and race is that we should recognize it's gonna be hard to love each other across ethnic divisions. It's going to be hard because sin is in us and in the world. So we should expect for it. We should look for that inclination in us and we should repent of it. All right, now go to Genesis chapter 11. So just flip over a few pages. And this is a really important story when it comes to a biblical understanding of ethnicity and race. So, so far the first two, we've got all people are made in the image of God and yet sin has come in and fractured that image bearing in such a way that things that we once celebrated now become causes for division. That's the beginning. Now, up to this point, we haven't seen God create any ethnicities. So we, don't, we see that along gender lines and we see it with Cain and Abel uh, in their own lives. So we see it among people, but we don't see it across ethnic lines. So we might ask, well, it's, I mean, does ethnicity really come into play here? And here's where we begin to see that come into play. Genesis chapter 11 is a story called the Tower of Babel. And here's the lesson from the story that I want us to get is that God created different ethnicities to display his image. God created different ethnicities to display his image. We talked about image bearing can be carried out by people who are different. And so God wanted to display. In other words, he's saying one ethnicity isn't enough to reflect and to bear my image. So I want to create multiple. They're not accidental, they're intentional. Does that make sense? You with me? All right, so watch what happens here. Now, Genesis chapter 11, and then I'm going to tell you about chapter 10, actually, after I read this to you. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for who? For God? No, for ourselves. Oh, here's that sin nature. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Can I take you back? I said Genesis 1:28. put a pen in it and remember it. It was the creation mandate to do what? To fill the earth and subdue it. And what do these people decide they want to do? To make a name for themselves, not for the Lord, and they don't want to be what? Dispersed. In other words, they're in rebellion against God. He said, fill the earth. They said, "Uh uh-uh, we're gonna stay right here and we're gonna make a name for ourselves. Now watch the mercy of God. The mercy, have you ever been disciplined by God where he just stopped you in your tracks and said, I'm not gonna let you go down that sinful path any longer. I'm just gonna stop you right here. And it probably hurt when he did it because it was like slamming into a wall at 70 miles an hour, right? But it was mercy 
because he stopped you from progressing further in your sin. And that's exactly what he does here. So watch what he does. They say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, which isn't good because what they're doing is rebelling against him. And nothing that they purpose or propose to do will be, now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right, let me walk you through a few things with this story. So number one, the question that probably comes up as we read this, we go, okay, well, here is the creation of these different languages and it divides the people, right? It gets them to do what they were always supposed to be doing, which was spreading out. In other words, if language is this critical piece of ethnic ethnicity, then what we see here is that God beginning to further bring about these ethnic markers, these ethnic heritages, so that his command to spread out and fill the earth will be obeyed. In other words, he has a purpose for it. Ethnicity is important to God. It matters to him and it helps accomplish his purposes. But we could ask the question, well, hold on. If he does that as sort of like a disciplinary act, then Maybe we should understand that ethnicity was something he used for a time as sort of almost a punishment. And he's gonna undo that one day and maybe, maybe undo all the different ethnic groups and bring us all back into the same people group to one ethnicity because this was sort of like a, he had to do it in order to punish them. Does that question make sense? Here's why the resounding answer to that question is no, absolutely not. God delights in the ethnic distinctions he's created. Number one is what happens in chapter 10. Three times in chapter 10, before all this sin is happening in chapter 11, we're told that people are cultivating different languages and different people groups. It's the table of nations is what it's called. And Noah and his sons in chapter nine, verse one, the creation mandate gets repeated. So Genesis 1, says, fill the earth, subdue it, multiply it. The flood comes, Noah and his kids come out of the ark. And in chapter nine, verse one, God repeats that creation mandate. He says to Noah and Ham and Shem and Japheth, he says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. Repeating 128, yes, you with me? So he repeats that. And so they've got this command. And then basically from there, what we get is a description of all the children that are born to them. And these people groups that start to form as a result, that's what chapter 10 is. So there is some confusion or at least some discussion among theologians. Well, why does chapter 11 begin saying they had one language when chapter 10 just told us they already had multiple languages being developed? And for our purposes today, I'm not gonna dive into that. We can have that discussion another time. All right, there's a, there's a number of thoughts as to why that's the case. But here's the important thing as we're thinking about the theology of ethnicity and race and how to think biblically about it is that God is already doing that before we see the Tower of Babel. So it's not just like a judgment thing. Also, what we're gonna see when we keep tracing this forward, when we get to Acts chapter two and Pentecost and the spirit is sent into the world, he's gonna undo what is done here, the division that's created by these different languages. So here's what we can discern from Genesis chapter 11, is that God delights to have different ethnic groups because they help accomplish his purposes in the world. They're important to his purposes. The division that exists among us is 
is as the result of sin. It's not the ethnic groups that are the result of sin. The ethnic groups are designed by God for his purposes and we'll see them continue to play a part in his purposes as we go forward. All right, fair enough. Does that make sense? All right, so let's keep moving then. So let's think about a couple of implications for this Genesis chapter 11 passage, right? So we already said God delights in ethnic diversity. It's a part of how his plans are going forward in the world. So that means it's not minor or inconsequential, right? We should not uh, act as if these categories don't matter. In other words, what he's saying is there's no one language, there's no one cultural heritage that can display my nature the way I want it to be displayed. I want there to be multiple. It's part of my design and my intention. And the fact that it continues forward in the kingdom and into eternity, actually, is part of how we know that. Now, let me say this, because this is where we're gonna come to next. God is not just saying fill the earth and subdue it because he wants people to sort of be everywhere, right? The reason he wants people to be everywhere, sorry, I put my hand there and it made it really loud there for a second, didn't it? The reason he wants them to fill the earth and subdue it and he creates ethnic groups in order to help that be accomplished is because that creation mandate is not an end unto itself. It sits underneath his redeeming purposes. So the big story is not, hey, God just had this neat idea of wanting to fill up the world. He says, no, no, I want to fill up the world because what I have determined is that I get the maximum amount of glory by redeeming people from every part of the world that I created. And that's what I'm after. And so I'm creating these different ethnic groups because I've determined that when I complete my work and I save some from every one of them, that's what gets me maximum glory. God is in the business of pursuing his maximum glory. Do you know that? And it's right and good that he would do it. It's not right for me to pursue my glory, but it's right and good for God to pursue his maximum glory. And so he's doing that. So what I want you to see is the creation mandate fits underneath the redemption story and, and narrative and arc that God is working out. So I hope that makes sense. Now, here's another thing. How important it is to understand uh, and to look for the ways that other ethnic heritages reflect the image of God. I already talked about how sometimes I get annoyed when I travel to these other places because I'm a sinner and I'm not recognizing and celebrating the differences between my cultural heritage and theirs in the ways that theirs bear the image of God. I'm not talking about every culture has sinful aspects to it because we are fallen sinners and every culture has ways that the image of God comes shining through in them. And we are to celebrate the latter while seeking to, to bring redemption and change to the former. Is that fair enough? So what that means is I've got to learn to take joy in looking for the way that my black brothers and sisters, my Hispanic brothers and sisters, as a, as a white man, I've got to learn to look for ways that these other ethnic heritage reflect something of the nature of God that my ethnic heritage does not. Because they have something I don't have. And I should learn to celebrate that. It also means that I should look for the ways my own ethnic heritage honors God and bears his image and reflects it to the world and the ways that it does not. and the ways that it does not. There are parts of all of our cultural heritages that do not honor God, and they should be put to death. The gospel trumps my ethnic heritage. It trumps it every time. Whatever the gospel tells me to be, that's who I am to be, not what my heritage 
ethnically or even familially tells me I should be. Now, let me say this one too, because there, I think it's a well-meaning thought, but another implication of this, if God delights to have these different ethnic groups as a part of his plan going forward in the world, then a, a framework I hear used quite a bit is this idea of being colorblind. And if by being colorblind, you just simply mean, I wanna value all people equally as image bearers, then praise God, that's, that's awesome, that's good. But usually what's tied with that, and, and one of the reasons I don't find it to be a real helpful concept, is that usually often what we mean is that we are almost sort of washing over the differences between like, hey, there is no distinction or difference between us. Well, sure, not in value and not in image bearing, but there are real distinctions and actually God wants those distinctions. He likes that my ethnic heritage is different than your ethnic heritage, who's different than that other ethnic heritage, because all of them have the potential to reflect the nature and the image of God in ways that the other ones do not. Does that make sense? And so just sort of washing over the distinctions is not a helpful approach. We want to see the differences because God gets more glory from it. Because image bearing and his nature is more fully understood through it, which is what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 11, why he creates them. Now, let's move on. Number four. Now we see here, right? So we're just going to go one chapter over Genesis chapter 12. We see here that God clearly wants these different ethnic groups, right? But the division exists because of the sin. And so the question is, well, is he going to be content to use the ethnicities to get them to spread out, to obey his creation mandate? And that's going to be enough for him. He's going to be great. That's good. And then maybe what I'll do is I'll just, I'll redeem some from here and I'll redeem some from there. But I don't really care about the division that exists between them. That can just keep on going because it doesn't really bother me at all. Not true. And here's how we know, because almost like he can't wait to get to it, he runs to it in Genesis chapter 12. The scripture's like, finish Genesis 11. They give us a little bit more table of nations stuff at the end of that chapter where it's like, and so-and-so had so-and-so who had so-and-so. You know, it's the parts of your scripture you're reading, like, I don't, these names are really strange to me, right? So you're reading that, and then it comes to chapter 12, and this pinnacle Old Testament moment in God's redeeming work, he chooses one person, a man named Abram, and through him, he promises to send the savior of the world who's gonna save people from every nation. And here's how that relates to our sense of like, okay, well, what does this speak about it? how we should think about God's purposes for ethnicity? Look at what he does in Genesis chapter 12. He picks Abram, he calls him, and let's just read the first three verses. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So pause. So here's what we could. If we just read that, we could go, okay, here's what God is gonna do about the division that we just saw. He's just gonna favor one group. He's just gonna pick one. And he's gonna go, you know what? Y you people, you're the ones I love the most. Israel in this case, right? I'm gonna make from Abram, I'm gonna change his name to Abraham. I'm gonna make the nation of Israel from him. And God could just say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna save them. That's my delight, that's my design, that's my plan. But he doesn't do that. And praise God, because most of us in this room are probably not ethnically Jewish, yes? So we should all say, whew, thank God for this, because look what happens next. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So what has he just done? Genesis chapter 11. Division is the consequence of the sin, but God still in his mercy is getting them to spread out like he told them to. Now, what does he do next? Okay, am I gonna do something about that division? Yes, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm rather than just sort of independently going and redeeming some people from this group and redeeming some people from this group, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna raise up one group, one ethnic group, and through them, I'm gonna send the savior who is not just for them, but for everyone, for every family of the earth. Did you catch that? And the reason, one of the reasons for that is that God is redeeming the division between the ethnicities. He's saying, I will, cre- I will create one. And then through that one, I will bless all the other ones. And if through creating one, he blesses all the other ones, what does that do to the division between us? It destroys it. It breaks it down. And that's part of the genius of God's plan of redemption is that he uses, do you see he's using ethnic distinctions in order to accomplish his purposes? That's why they're so important. They're not just important because the world has some nice idea about diversity they think sounds really good. They're important to us because God is redeeming the world and using it to accomplish his purposes. That's why we should care about it. That's why it matters because God gets more glory from it. Number five, Jesus declared the ethnic, now we're gonna, we've been in Genesis this whole time. You thought we were never getting out, didn't you? Go to Matthew, New Testament. Now I know, I'm like, I'm going, I'm flying at 5,000 feet over the prophets and I'm flying over the Psalms and oh, there's so much there. I mean, if we stayed an extra hour, I, could, I would give it to you, but you know, the Cowboys are on later on. And, Y'all all know the story about when Tech Schramm said that the Cowboy Stadium had a hole in the roof so God could watch his favorite team play. We all know that. That may be an example of uh, Texans thinking too highly of their ethnic heritage. All right, Matthew chapter eight. Sorry, I was, that was all just to, so I could flip to Matthew chapter eight. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter eight. Verse five through verse 13, here's where we are now. We've seen how God is founding all of this in the Old Testament. We've seen how it's working forward. Now, come to Jesus and what he says. Now, there's a bunch of passages we could look at in the ministry of Jesus, but let me just show you one because here's what we're gonna learn that Jesus is gonna teach us. Ethnic diversity, Jesus teaches us, in his kingdom is a demonstration that salvation is by grace through faith. In other words, Ethnic diversity actually carries the ability. It's not the only thing that carries the ability, obviously, but it's an important part of his kingdom that it's diverse ethnically because it actually testifies that salvation is by grace, through faith, not by your works and not by the ethnic heritage that you have. In other words, you don't get saved because you belong to a certain group of people. You get saved by faith. And here's how Jesus teaches us that. Watch what happens. This Roman centurion, verse five, Remember, this is, a, this is a Gentile. This is a group of people that the Jews hate. They're oppressing them. And so listen to this story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled 
and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What was the last word? Faith, right? So now listen, Jesus could just stop there, right? That, he could say, brother, you're amazing. Your faith is astounding. Your servant is healed, go, go, right? You see, I mean, it's pretty amazing faith. The centurion's like, I don't need you to come under my roof. You can do it from right there. And Jesus then takes this moment to teach a lesson because he doesn't just go, yeah, I'm gonna heal this guy. He teaches a lesson. Look at the lesson he teaches. So not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what's he just said? He said, there's gonna be people like this centurion who are not Jewish that are gonna be part of the kingdom. They're gonna come from the east and the west. They're gonna come from everywhere. They're gonna be part of this kingdom. And then he goes on even to say something harder. While the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now listen, again, we're thinking about a theology of ethnicity and race. This story is rich. We can mine it for all kinds of great theology about the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus but here's the point that I want you to get. Jesus points out the faith of the centurion and then takes that moment to point out that it's not just by being Jewish that you'll be saved. In fact, some Jews will not be saved. He expressly tells us there. And he says, while some who are ethnically part of the in-group are not going to be saved, some who are not ethnically part of the in-group will be saved. And what does that testify to? It testifies that like this centurion, the reason they're saved is what? Not their background, but their faith. Their faith. So in other words, think about it. What's the implication for this? The implication is really simple. One of the reasons God delights to have ethnic diversity in his kingdom is because it testifies to the fact that you don't get saved by being a part of a certain group or by being really good at doing a lot of righteous things. You are saved by faith and faith alone. And when you witness people from all these different backgrounds who are all saved by that faith, you recognize it could only be faith because they're so different. This person and that person are so different. There's no possible way that just whatever their background is, there's something in that that gets them saved. That ethnic diversity testifies to the fact that salvation is by grace through faith. Can you see how deeply important that is? Yes? That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Now, it also reminds us, can I tell you one other thing? Because here's where sometimes the world kind of goes in error, right? Of making our ethnic heritage or our race, uh, by their thinking, sort of a primary identity marker for us. And one of the things the story also does, it, it says ethnic diversity is important in the kingdom because it testifies to the nature of salvation. But it also, while not minimizing it, it also doesn't idolize it. It doesn't say your ethnic background is a primary identity marker because it can't save you. It's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you are a son or daughter of the king if you are in the kingdom. It's the way you relate to God, what your relational status is with him. That's what's most important about you. So do you see the beauty of this? In one fell swoop, what Jesus has done is he has both shown the importance and design and beauty of ethnic diversity while also not raising it to the place where we say, this is the thing that matters about me, that I am white or that I am black or that I am fill it in, whatever it is, right? You with me, church? He's done both of those things in just one 
moment there, and I love it. Now, listen, I'm going to skip over Acts chapter 2 because the Spirit comes after the cross, and so I need to talk about the cross for a moment in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going biblically, we're going further to the right, but chronologically we're staying in order here. So Ephesians chapter 2. So if ethnic diversity in the kingdom demonstrates, is one demonstration, that salvation is by faith, then the next thing we see is this. Ethnic diversity within God's family is intentional and he delights in it because it also testifies to the power of the object of our faith. So salvation is by faith. What's the object of that faith? The cross of Jesus. And ethnic diversity, in particular, reconciled relationships between people of different ethnicities testifies to the power of the cross because only the cross can do it. Only the cross can do it. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verses 14, 15, and 16. Talking about Jesus, says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So let me just take this piece by piece so that we make sure we follow it because it's, it's, this is meaty, okay? Jesus is our peace. In other words, here, the context is ethnic division. It's Jews and Gentiles. That's who Paul is talking to. They're members of this church in Ephesus. And he's saying, hey, he has made peace between you, Jew and Gentile. He has made peace between you, black and white. He has made peace between you, Asian and Hispanic. He has made peace between you. Okay, how? Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, okay? So here's what he's saying. He's made peace by taking away whatever it was between you that was creating hostility. He broke that down. Well, how did he do that? And what was the thing that was creating hostility? Well, the hostility, it's understood, is the distinctions between us. Remember, go back to Genesis chapter three, the things that we should have celebrated as distinct that were image-bearing nature pieces of us become causes for division, reasons to hate one another. And he says, he's broken down that wall of hostility between you. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Here's what he's just said. If you thought salvation was accomplished by your ability to do a lot of good things, the law of commandments, to obey them perfectly, and that's what saved you. If you thought that, then whoever followed them, and in particular the Jews who had those laws, would have a leg up on everybody else. You would have grounds for boasting because you would say, I did it better than you did it. I was saved in a way that, you, that was better than you, in other words. Like, I, I'm ahead of you. And what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is the ground at the, at the foot of the cross is level. No one gets a leg up because he's abolished the law of commandments. In other words, he's done away with the law as a way to be saved. You are saved by faith, by faith through grace or by grace through faith. So he says, they might create us of one new man and place the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's what Paul has just said. He said that your ethnic heritage, 
you are made one in Christ across those. Now, I, I want you to get the difference between, he didn't just say, here's an implication for you. He didn't just say, you are made able to be friends with people of different ethnic backgrounds. He said, you now must consider yourself one with them. You are inseparably tied to them. They are your brother, your sister. You just think of them like you think of yourself. That's how you should think of them. They are you, you are them. I don't mean to overstate that as if you're one person, but here the idea is one body, one family, all together in Christ, indivisible. And he says, how did he do that? He broke down the dividing wall of hostility by dying on the cross. He took the hatred, the animosity. He took all the sin he aimed it all at himself and received it. And in doing so, he reconciled us to God and therefore to one another. So friends, here's the importance of thinking biblically about ethnicity. If we don't relate rightly to one another across ethnic lines, we are denying the power of the cross. Right relationship, the pursuit of justice, which we'll talk about next week, biblical justice, the pursuit of these things, seeking them out, is a demonstration that the cross is powerful and a failure to walk in right relationship across those ethnic lines, a failure to pursue that kind of reconciliation is denial of the cross. It's denial of the gospel itself. That's what Paul is getting at here. Friends, that's how deeply important this subject is. It means any... Racism in my heart needs to be rooted out and dealt ruthlessly with because I don't want to deny the truth of the gospel. I want it to be displayed in me. Now listen, it also tells us this. The cross is the only way this can happen. This animosity, this hatred, what else can get down deep into the heart and actually undo it? There's no amount of systems or structures or rethinking or education that can do this until the cross takes hold of the heart and pierces it. Until that happens, there's no hope for this. Which is why we don't believe in a lot of secular approaches to this because ultimately they come up short of dealing with the actual problem because the actual problem is me. It's my heart. It's the wickedness that stays in there and doesn't want to be rooted out and wants to treat others as lesser and wants to deny the image of God in others. I'm the problem. And God wants to put that to death and praise God that the cross is powerful enough to do it. And it's the only thing powerful enough to do it. You can't educate yourself into this. You can't just have enough sympathy somehow mustered up for people of different ethnic backgrounds to go, Yay, I'm gonna figure this out. No, there will always be something that remains that wants to put you and what you're like ahead of others and what they're like, always, until the cross. And praise God that those of us under the shadow of that cross are being changed day by day. Let us not deny that. Let us walk in it. Let us embrace it. Let us long for it. Let us call out for it. Now, Ethnic diversity in the kingdom testifies that it's by faith. That's why it's important. It testifies to the power of the cross when we are reconciled across it. That's why it's important. Now watch, the next thing is Acts chapter two. The spirit is at work doing this all the time. And if we are not joining him in it, then we're working in opposition to him. Do you, I mean, do you wanna walk, walk in opposition to the spirit? No, 
You want to walk in obedience to the Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, just going back to that. And I, I promise, we're closing up here. You guys, we doing okay? You hanging in there? Y'all are doing awesome. I know the, the tummies start to rumble at noon. And you guys are... You guys are awesome to stay with me. So listen now, the spirit, number seven, the spirit comes and he ushers in a new era in the kingdom of God of reconciled relationship. So here's what happens. I'm gonna summarize Acts chapter two rather than read it to you and you can go back and you can read it, right? This is the moment we call Pentecost. And what's happening here is God is undoing through the first proclamation of the gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus and then the spirit being sent into the world. Do you know what he's doing? He's undoing the division of the Tower of Babel. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and don't read Acts chapter two without seeing its connection because what he's doing is saying, remember how God created all these different languages and it divided people, right? But it did get them to spread out. Well, now I'm gonna bring them all together. So Acts chapter two says there were people from every nation who had gathered in Jerusalem because they had some connection to sort of Judaism and they were sort of saying, okay, we're, we think that this is the one true God. The Spirit descends on Peter and the rest of the disciples and they go out and begin to preach the gospel. Now, here's the important thing. If God's plan was to say, yeah, 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 the ethnic group thing, that was in order to just get them spread out back in Genesis chapter 11. But ultimately, I really only want one. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring them all back to one language, to one skin color, to one you know, cultural heritage. If that's what he was gonna do, then here's what would have happened. He would have proclaimed the gospel at Pentecost in Hebrew, and he would have made everybody able to understand Hebrew. He would have made all the languages back to what? One. But what happens? The disciples start speaking languages they don't even know. And everyone says this. We're hearing this proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus in our own languages. And they're amazed. So in other words... God affirms, yes, I delight in these ethnicities in such a way that the Spirit, the first work of the Spirit when he comes is to proclaim the gospel and tell people how to be saved. But he's gonna do it in their languages. He's gonna go to them. In other words, that's an affirmation. I delight in your language. I delight in your distinction. I delight in your difference. Let me come into it and bring my redemption to your heritage. And let me bring it to your heritage. And let me bring it to yours. That's what he's doing in Acts chapter two. Think about the implications for us in terms of mission and going with the spirit to bring about the good news of the gospel to every person, to every place. Now, last thing. Go to Revelation, into the scriptures. I told you we're going Genesis to Revelation all the way, beginning to end. What we see in Revelation is this, the immeasurable worth of Jesus, which is what this has all been about, yes? The immeasurable worth of Jesus is displayed through ethnic diversity in his kingdom. In other words, he doesn't want just one ethnic group. He wants them all. And guess what? He will have them all. There will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, not every person, but people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered around the throne of God. So look at Revelation chapter five and we just have to read them because they're, they're too good and it's the word of God resounding in our hearts that changes us, not just a mediocre sermon. Listen to this now. In Revelation chapter five, verse eight, there's this 
crying out because God's purposes are represented by these scrolls, okay? They're symbolic of God's purposes in the world. He wants to do something, and the, the scrolls are sealed up, and no one can open the scrolls until the lamb comes. And the lamb is Jesus, right? And here's what happens. And when he, the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, let me pause and tell you, first thing you need to see here is that it's very clear the lamb is divine because the lamb is being worshiped and the four living creatures and the 24, they don't worship anybody but God. And so they're worshiping the lamb. Now, why is he called worthy? Why is he worshiped? What's the first thing they're gonna choose to say? Because you created everything? Worthy are you because you possess all power? Worthy are you because you were raised from the dead? Those are all worthy answers to that question, right? But what do they say? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see it? The thing that they choose in that moment, these divine, these heaven, not divine, heavenly beings, the thing they choose to worship Jesus for is that he's redeemed people from every ethnic group. They say, this is how important it is. It's one of the, it's one of the first things we're gonna tell you about what, how we see how great you are. How important must it be for us to be a visible display of that? to be a people who seek to do more of it and be part of more of God's work in this way. When the lamb himself is worshiped because of it. Last verse for us, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Again, what we see there, friends, is that the immeasurable worth of Jesus is seen and displayed in the fact, not that he makes all people into one ethnicity, but that people from every ethnicity are made one in him and come to worship him. It's not enough for him to get worship from one group. He wants it from all of them and he is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. And so he receives it. Another beautiful picture here, by the way, is the white robes in Revelation chapter seven that people from every group, tongue and tribe and nation have received. They've received them because they were all killed for their faith. This group gathered around the throne is not just all believers, it's believers who were martyred. In other words, you know what brings Jesus glory? That people from this tribe and that language and this nation all said, you know who's worthy of laying down my life for? Jesus. And they'll come together and they'll say, you lay down your life, I lay down my life because Jesus is king and he is worthy. And he is worthy. Now friends, what I've tried to do for you here today is just lay out for you the story of scripture from beginning to end and to show you that ethnicity plays an important part in the purposes of God. So let us not embrace secular ideologies that don't help 
and cannot get us where we need to go, but let us also not minimize or act as if the distinctions between us and the reconciliation needs to happen between us and the justice that needs to be brought to bear when there is injustice in the world according to God's definition of those things as if it doesn't matter and we can turn a blind eye to it. We want to join him in his work because he gets glory from it. Yes? Amen. Well, I've taken more of your time, so we're not gonna have a closing song. I'm gonna pray over you and send you on your way. So let me, in fact, why don't you stand with me and receive the benediction. I knew we'd go over today. I presumed upon your patience. I hope it was worthwhile. Thank you very much. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, what we want is to be like you. We wanna love what you love. We wanna hate what you hate. We we want to despise evil, to abhor it as your scripture tells us to, but we want to love righteousness. And we admit, Lord Jesus, we are far from it. We fail again and again. We see the sin in ourselves. And, And Lord Jesus, like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, would you examine us, search our hearts, test us, see if there be any egregious way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We don't wanna be a people who are stiff-necked. We don't wanna be a people who, when we're not doing right or not thinking right, just hold to those thoughts and actions. We want to be tender and moldable before you. Thank you for giving us your word. Lord Jesus, if what has been shared here today is your heartbeat and what you have imparted to us, it's not made up, then let it take root in us. Let us be part of your work. We bow before you and we love you. And as your people go now, may they go in the power of the spirit, in love for one another as reconciled sinners, reconciled to you and to each other. Thank you that you have made us one. We love you and help us to grow and grow and grow in loving one another more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Church family, we love you. Go in peace. See you next week.